Introduction Part Two of Rob Roy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rowan. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Volume One. Introduction Part Two. On the eighteenth of February following, more men of the MacGregors were executed after a long imprisonment, and several others in the beginning of March. The Earl of Argyll's service in conducting to the surrender of the insolent and wicked race in name of MacGregor, notorious common malefactors, and in the bringing in of MacGregor, with a great many of the leading men of the clan, worthily executed to death for their offences, is thankfully acknowledged by an Act of Parliament, 1607, Chapter 16, and rewarded with the grant of twenty childers of victual out of the lands of Kintyre. The MacGregors, notwithstanding the letters of fire and sword, and orders for military execution, repeatedly directed against them by the Scottish legislator, who apparently lost all the calmness of conscious dignity and security, and could not even name the outlawed clan, without vituperation, showed no inclination to be blotted out of the role of clanship. They submitted to the law, indeed, so far as to take the names of the neighbouring families amongst whom they happened to live nominally becoming, as the case might render it most convenient, Drummonds, Campbells, Grahams, Buchanans, Stuarts, and the like. But to all intents and purposes of combination and mutual attachment, they remained their clan Gregor, united together for right or wrong, and menacing with the general vengeance of their race, all who committed aggressions against any individual of their number. They continued to take and give offence, with as little hesitation as before the legislative dispersion which had been attempted, as appears in the preamble to statute, 1633, chapter 30, settling forth that the clan Gregor, which had been suppressed and reduced to quietness by the great care of the late King James of eternal memory, had nevertheless broken out again, in the counties of Perth, Stirling, Clarkmanon, Monteith, Lennox, Angus, and Merrins, for which reason the statute re-establishes the disabilities attached to the clan, and grants a new commission for enforcing the laws against that wicked and rebellious race. Notwithstanding the extreme servitudes of King James I and Charles I against the unfortunate people, who were rendered furious by proscription, and then punished for yielding to the passions which had been wilfully irritated, the MacGregors, to a man, attached themselves during the civil war to the cause of the latter monarch. Their bards have ascribed this to the native respect of the MacGregors for the crown of Scotland, which their ancestors once wore, and have appealed to their armorial bearings, which display a pine-treed cross wise with a naked sword, the point of which supports a royal crown. But, without denying that such motives may have had their weight, we are disposed to think that a war which opened the low country to the raids of the clan Gregor would have more charms for them than any inducement to espouse the cause of the Covenanters, which would have brought them into contact with Highlanders as fierce as themselves, and having as little to lose. Patrick MacGregor, their leader, was the son of a distinguished chief, named Duncan Aberach, to whom Montrose wrote letters as to his trusty and special friend, expressing his reliance on his devoted loyalty, with an assurance that when once his majesty's affairs were placed upon a permanent footing, the grievances of the clan MacGregor should be readdressed. 
At a subsequent period of these melancholy times, we find the clan Gregor claiming the immunities of other tribes, when summoned by the Scottish Parliament to resist the invasion of the Commonwealth's army in 1651. On the last day of March in that year, a supplication to the King and Parliament, from Callum Macondachy, Fitch Ewan, and Ewan Macondachy, Ewan in their own name, and that of the whole names of MacGregor, set forth that while, in obedience to the orders of Parliament, enjoining all clans to come out in the present service under their chieftains, for the defence of religion, king, and kingdoms, the petitioners were drawing their men to guard the passes at the head of the river Forth, set forth, that while, in obedience to the orders of Parliament, enjoining all clans to come out in the present service under their chieftains, for the defence of religion, king, kingdoms, the petitioners were drawing their men to guard the passes at the head of the river Forth. They were interfered with by the Earl of Athol and the Laird of Buchanan, who had required the attendance of many of the clan Gregor upon their arrays. This interference was doubtless owing to the change of name, which seems to have given rise to the claim of the Earl of Athol and the Laird of Buchanan, to muster the MacGregors under their banners, as Murrays or Buchanans. It does not appear that the petition of the MacGregors, to be permitted to come out in a body, as other clans, received any answer. But upon the restoration, King Charles, in the first Scottish Parliament of his reign, Statute 1661, Chapter 195, annulled the various acts against the clan Gregor, and restored them to the full use of their family name, and the other privileges of liege subjects, setting forth as a reason for this lenity, that those who were formerly designed MacGregors, had, during the late troubles, conducted themselves with such loyalty and affection to his majesty, as might justly wipe off all memory of further miscarriages, and take away all marks of reproach for the same. It is singular enough that it seems to have aggregated the feelings of the non-conforming Presbyterians, when the penalties which were most unjustly imposed upon themselves were relaxed towards the poor MacGregors. So little are the best men, any more than the worst, able to judge with impartiality of the same measures as apply to themselves or to others. Upon the restoration, an influence inimical to this unfortunate clan, said to be the same with that which afterwards dictated the massacre of Glencoe, occasioned the re-enaction of the penal statutes against the MacGregors. There are no reasons given why these highly penal acts should have been renewed, nor is it alleged that the clan had been guilty of late irregularities. Indeed, there is some reason to think that the cause was formed of set purpose, in a shape which delude observation. For, though continuing conclusions fatal to the rights of so many Scottish subjects, it is neither mentioned in the title, nor in the rubric of the Act of Parliament in which it occurs, and is thrown briefly in it to the close of the statute, 1693, chapter 61, entitled, An Act for the Justiciary in the Highlands. It does not, however, appear that after the revolution the acts against the clan were severely enforced, and in the latter half of the eighteenth century they were not enforced at all. Commissioners of supply were named in Parliament by the prescribed title of MacGregor, and decrees of courts of justice were pronounced, and legal deeds entered into under the same appellative. 
The MacGregors, however, while the laws continued in the statute book, still suffered under the deprivation of the name which was their birthright, and some attempts were made for the purpose of adopting another. MacAlpine or Grant being proposed as the title of the whole clan in future. No agreement, however, could be entered into, and the evil was submitted to as a matter of necessity, and a full redress was obtained from the British Parliament, by an act abolishing for ever the penal statutes which had been so long imposed upon this ancient race. This statute, while merited by the services of many a gentleman of the clan in behalf of their king and country, was passed, and the clan proceeded to act upon it with the same spirit of ancient times, which had made them suffer severely, under a deprivation that would have been deemed of little consequence, by a great part of their fellow-subjects. They entered into a deed, recognising John Murray of Lanrick, Esquire, afterwards Sir John MacGregor, Baronet, representative of the family Glencarronock, as lawfully descended from the ancient stock and blood of the lairds and lords of MacGregor, and therefore acknowledged him as their chief on all lawful occasions and causes whatsoever. The deed was subscribed by eight hundred and twenty-six persons of the name of MacGregor, capable of bearing arms. A great many of the clan during the last war formed themselves into what was called the Clan Alpine Regiment, raised in 1799, under the command of their chief and his brother Colonel MacGregor. Having briefly noticed the history of this clan, which presents a rare and interesting example of the indelible character of the patriarchal system, the author must now offer some notices of the individual who gives name to these volumes. In giving an account of a Highlander, his pedigree is first to be considered. That of Rob Roy was deduced from Caer Hoare, the great mouse-coloured man, who is accused by tradition of having slain the younger students at the Battle of Glenfruin. Without puzzling ourselves and our readers with the intricacies of Highland genealogy, it is enough to say that, after the death of Alistair MacGregor of Glanstry, the clan, discouraged by the unremitting persecution of their enemies, seems not to have had the means of placing themselves under the command of a single chief. According to their places of residence and immediate descent, the several families were led and directed by chieftains, which, in the Highland acceptation, signifies the head of a particular branch of a tribe, in opposition to chief who is the leader and commander of the whole name. The family and descendants of Dugald Cairn War lived chiefly in the mountains between Loch Lomond and Loch Katrine, and occupied a good deal of property there, whether by sufferance, by the right of the sword, which it was never safe to dispute with them, or by the legal titles of various kinds, it would be useless to inquire and unnecessary to detail. Enough. There they certainly were, a people whom their most powerful neighbours were desirous to conciliate, their friendship in peace being very necessary, to the quiet of the vicinage, and their assistance in war equally prompt and effectual. Rob Roy MacGregor Campbell, whose last name he bore in consequence of the Acts of Parliament abolishing his own, was the younger son of Donald MacGregor of Glengyle, said to have been a lieutenant-colonel, probably in the service of James the Second by his wife, a daughter of Campbell of Glenfalloch. Rob's own designation was of Inversened, but he appears to have acquired a right of some kind or other 
to the property or possession of Craig Royston, a domain of rock and forest lying on the east side of Loch Lomond, where the beautiful lake stretches into the dusky mountains of Glen Falloch. The time of his birth is uncertain, but he is said to have been active in the scenes of war and plunder which succeeded the revolution, and tradition affirms him to have been the leader in a predatory incursion into the parish of Kippen, in the Lennox, which took place in the year 1691. It was of almost a bloodless character, only one person losing his life. But from the extent of the depredation, it was long distinguished by the name of hairship, or devastation, of Kippen. The time of his death is also uncertain, but he is said to have survived the year 1733, and died an aged man. It is probable he may have been twenty-five, about the time of the hership of Kippen, which would assign his birth to be the middle of the seventeenth century. In the more quiet times which succeed the revolution, Rob Roy, or Red Robert, seems to have exerted his active talents, which were of no mean order, as a drover or trader in cattle, to a great extent. It may well be supposed that in those days no lowland, much less English drovers, ventured to enter the highlands. The cattle, which were the stable commodity of the mountains, were escorted down to fairs, on the borders of the lowlands, by a party of highlanders, with their arms rattling around them, and who dealt, however, in all honour and good faith with their southern customers. A fray, indeed, would sometimes arise when the lowland men, chiefly borderers, who had to supply the English market, used to dip their bonnets in the next brook, and wrapping them round their hands, oppose their cudgels to the naked broadswords, which had not always a superiority. I have heard from aged persons, who had been engaged in such a phrase, that the Highlanders used remarkably fair play, never using the point of the sword, far less their pistols or daggers, so that, with many a stiff thwack and many a bang, hard crabtree and cold iron rang. A slash or two, or a broken head, was easily accommodated, and as the trade was a benefit to both parties, trifling skirmishes were not allowed to interrupt its harmony. Indeed, it was of vital interest to the Highlanders, whose income, so far as derived from their estates, depended entirely on the sale of black cattle, and a sagacious and experienced dealer benefited not only himself, but his friends and neighbours by his speculations. Those of Rob Roy were, for several years, so successful as to inspire general confidence, and raise him in the estimation of the country in which he resided. His importance was increased by the death of his father, in consequence of which he succeeded to the management of his nephew, Gregor MacGregor, of Glengyle's property, and, as his tutor, to such influence with the clan and following as was due to the representative of Dugald Care. Such influence was the more uncontrolled, that this family of the MacGregors seemed to have refused adherence to MacGregor of Glencarnock, the ancestor of the present Sir Ewan MacGregor, and asserted a kind of independence. It was at this time that Rob Roy acquired an interest by purchase, wadset or otherwise, to the property of Craig Royston, already mentioned. He was in particular favour, during this prosperous period of his life, with his nearest and most powerful neighbour, James, first Duke of Montrose, 
from whom he received many marks of regard. His grace consented to give his nephew and himself a right of property on the estates of Glengal and Inversned, which they had till then only held as kindly tenants. The duke also, with a view to the interest of the country and his own estate, supported our adventurer by loans of money to a considerable amount, to enable him to carry on his speculations in the cattle trade. Unfortunately that species of commerce was, and is liable to sudden fluctuations, and Rob Roy was, by a sudden depression of markets, and, as a friendly tradition adds, by the bad faith of a partner named MacDonald, whom he had imprudently received into his confidence, and entrusted with a considerable sum of money, rendered totally insolvent. He absconded, of course. Not empty-handed, if it be true, as stated in an advertisement for his apprehension, that he had in his possession sums to the amount of a thousand pounds sterling, obtained from several noblemen and gentlemen under pretense of purchasing cows from them in the highlands. The advertisement appeared in June 1712, and was several times repeated, it fixes the period when Rob Roy exchanged his commercial adventures for speculations of a very different complexion. Footnote. See Appendix Number 1. Close footnote. He appears at this period first to have removed from his ordinary dwelling at Inversned ten or twelve Scots miles, which is double the number of English, farther into the Highlands, and commenced the lawless sort of life which he afterwards followed. The Duke of Montrose, who conceived himself deceived and cheated by MacGregor's conduct, employed legal means to recover the money lent to him. Rob Roy's landed property was attached by the regular form of legal procedure, and his stock and furniture made the subject of arrest and sale. It is said that this diligence of the law, as it is called in Scotland, which the English more bluntly term distress, was used in this case with uncommon severity and that the legal satellites, not usually the gentlest persons in the world, had insulted MacGregor's wife, in a manner which would have aroused a milder man than he to thoughts of unbounded vengeance. She was a woman of fierce and haughty temper, and it is not unlikely to have disturbed the officers in the execution of their duty, and thus to have incurred ill-treatment, though, for the sake of humanity, it is to be hoped that the story sometimes told is a popular exaggeration, it is certain that she felt extreme anguish at being expelled from the banks of Loch Lomond, and gave vent to her feelings in a fine piece of pipe-music, still well known to amateurs by the name of Rob Roy's Lament. The fugitive is thought to have found his first place of refuge in Glendochat, under the Earl of Breadalbane's protection, for, though that family had been active agents in the destruction of the MacGregors in former times, they had of late years sheltered a great many of the name in their old possessions. The Duke of Argyll was also one of Rob Roy's protectors, so far as to afford him, according to the Highland phrase, wood and water. The shelter, namely, that is afforded by the forests and lakes of an inaccessible country. The great men of the Highlands in that time, besides being anxiously ambitious to keep out what was called their following, or military retainers, also desirous to have at their disposal men of resolute character, to whom the world and the world's law were no friends, and who might at times ravish the lands or destroy the tenants of a feudal enemy, without bringing responsibility on their patrons. 
the strife between the names of Campbell and Graham during the civil wars of the seventeenth century had been stamped with mutual loss and inveterate enmity. The death of the great Marquess of Montrose on one side, the defeat at Inverlochy, and the cruel plundering of Lorne on the other, were reciprocal injuries not likely to be forgotten. Rob Roy was, therefore, sure of refuge in the country of the Campbells, both as having assumed their name, as connected by his mother with the family of Glenfalloch, and as an enemy to the rival house of Montrose. The extent of Argyle's possessions, and the power of retreating thither in any emergency, gave great encouragement to the bold schemes of revenge which he had adopted. This was nothing short of the maintenance of a predatory war against the Duke of Montrose, whom he considered as the author of his exclusion from civil society, and of the outlawry to which he had been sentenced, by letters of horning and caption, legal writ so called, as well as a seizure of his goods, and adjudication of his landed property. Against his grace, therefore, his tenants, friends, allies, and relatives, he disposed himself to employ every means of annoyance in his power. And though this was a circle sufficiently extensive for active depredation, Rob, who professed himself a Jacobite, took the liberty of extending his sphere of operations against all whom he chose to consider as friendly to the revolutionary government, or to that most obnoxious of measures, the union of the kingdoms. Under one or other of these pretexts, all his neighbours of the lowlands, who had anything to lose, or were unwilling to compound for security by paying him an annual sum for protection or forbearance, were exposed to his ravages. The country in which this private warfare, or system of depredation, was to be carried on, was, until opened up by roads, in the highest degree favourable for his purpose. It was broken up into narrow valleys, the habitable part of which bore no proportion to the huge wilderness of forest, rocks, and precipices by which they were encircled, and which was, moreover, full of inextricable passes, morasses, and natural strengths, unknown to any but the inhabitants themselves, where a few men acquainted with the ground were capable, with ordinary address, of baffling the pursuit of numbers. The opinions and habits of the nearest neighbours to the highland line were also highly favourable to Rob Roy's purpose. A large proportion of them were of his own clan of MacGregor, who claimed the property of Balhuida and other highland districts, as having been part of the ancient possessions of their tribe, though the harsh laws, under the severity of which they had suffered so deeply, had assigned the ownership to other families. The civil wars of the seventeenth century had accustomed these men to the use of arms, and they were peculiarly brave and fierce for remembrance of their sufferings. The vicinity of a comparatively rich lowland district gave also great temptations to incursion. Many belonging to other clans habituated to contempt of industry, and to the use of arms, drew towards an unprotected frontier which promised facility of plunder and the state of the country, now so peaceable and quiet, verified at that time the opinion which Dr. Johnson heard, with doubt and suspicion, that the most disorderly and lawless districts of the Highlands were those which lay nearest to the lowland line. There was, therefore, no difficulty in Rob Roy, descended of a tribe which was widely dispersed in the country you have described, 
collecting any number of followers whom he might be able to keep in action, and to maintain by his proposed operations. He himself appears to have been singularly adapted for the profession which he proposed to exercise. His stature was not of the tallest, but his person was uncommonly strong and compact. The great peculiarities of his frame were the breadth of his shoulders, and the great and almost disproportionate length of his arms, so remarkable, indeed, that it was said that he could, without stooping, tie the garters of his highland hose, which are placed two inches below the knee. His countenance was open, manly, stern at periods of danger, but frank and cheerful in his hours of festivity. His hair was dark red, thick and frizzled, and curled short around the face. His fashion of dress showed, of course, the knees and upper part of the leg, which was described to me as resembling that of a highland bull, hirsute, with red hair and invincing muscular strength similar to that animal. To these personal qualifications must be added a masterly use of the highland sword, in which his length of arm gave him great advantage, and a perfect and intimate knowledge of all the recesses of the wild country in which he harboured, and the character of the various individuals, whether friendly or hostile, with whom he might come in contact. His mental qualities seemed to have been no less adapted to the circumstances in which he was placed. Though the descendant of the bloodthirsty Care Hoare, he inherited none of his ancestors' ferocity. On the contrary, Rob Roy avoided every appearance of cruelty, and it was not averred that he was ever the means of unnecessary bloodshed, or the actor in any deed which could lead the way to it. His schemes of plunder were contrived and executed with equal boldness and sagacity, and were almost universally successful, from the skill with which they were laid, and the secrecy and rapidity with which they were executed. Like Robin Hood of England, he was a kind and gentle robber, and while he took from the rich, was liberal in relieving the poor. This might in part be policy, but the universal tradition from the country speaks it to have arisen from a better motive. All whom I have conversed with, and I have in my youth seen some who knew Rob Roy personally, gave him the character of a benevolent and humane man, in his way. His ideas of morality were those of an Arab chief, being such as naturally arose out of his wild education. Supposing Rob Roy to have argued on the tendency of the life which he pursued, whether from choice or from necessity, he would doubtless have assumed to himself the character of a brave man, who, deprived of his natural rights by the partiality of laws, endeavoured to assert them by a strong hand of natural power. And he is most feliciously described as reasoning thus, in the high-toned poetry of my gifted friend Wordsworth. Say, then, that he was wise as brave, as wise in thought as bold indeed, for in the principle of things he sought his moral creed. Said generous Rob, what need of books, burn all the statutes and their shells. They stir us up against our kind, and worst against ourselves. We have a passion, make a law, too false to guide us or control, and for the law itself we fight in bitterness of soul. And puzzled, blinded, then we lose distinctions that are plain and few. These find I graven on my heart that tells me what to do. 
the creatures see of flood and field, and those that travel on the wind, with them no strife can last, they live in peace and peace of mind. For why? Because the good old rule sufficeth them, the simple plan, that they should take who have the power, and they should keep who can. A lesson which is quickly learned, a signal through which all can see, thus nothing here provokes the strong to wanton cruelty. And freakishness of mind is checked, he tamed who foolishly aspires, while to the measure of his might each fashions his desires. All kinds and creatures stand and fall, by strength of prowess or of wit, tis God's appointment who must sway, and who is to submit. Since then, said Robin, right is plain, and longest life is but a day, to have my ends, maintain my rights, I'll take the shortest way. And thus among these rocks he lived, through summer's heat and winter's snow. The eagle he was lord above, and Rob was lord below. We are not, however, to suppose the character of this distinguished outlaw to be that of an actual hero, acting uniformly and consistently on such moral principles as the illustrious bard who, standing by his grave, has vindicated his fame. On the contrary, as is common with barbarous chiefs, Rob Roy appears to have mixed his professions of principle with a large alloy of craft and dissimulation of which his conduct during the civil war is sufficient proof. It is also said, and truly, that although his courtesy was one of the strongest characteristics, yet sometimes he assumed an arrogance of manner which was not easily endured by the high-spirited men to whom it was addressed, and drew the daring outlaw into frequent disputes, from which he did not always come off with credit. From this it has been inferred, that Rob Roy was more of a bully than a hero. Or at least that he had, according to the common phrase, his fighting days. Some aged men who knew him well have described him also as better at attack to Lucy, or scuffle within doors, than in mortal combat. The tenor of his life may be quoted to repel this charge, while at the same time it must be allowed that the situation in which he was placed rendered him prudently adverse to maintaining quarrels, where nothing was to be had save blows, and where success would have raised up against him new and powerful enemies, in a country where revenge was still considered as a duty rather than a crime. The power of commanding his passions on such occasions, far from being inconsistent with the part which MacGregor had to perform, was essentially necessary, at the period when he lived, to prevent his career from being cut short. End of introduction part two.